0: Hello and welcome to episode 141 of the Cognicast, a podcast by Cognitech, Inc. about software and the people who create it. I'm Russ Olson. This week our host Karen Meyer interviews Michael Nygaard about the new edition of his award-winning book Release It, which itself was released earlier this year. But before we get started, we do have a couple of announcements. The Call for Papers for Closure Tree 2018 conference is open until June 17th, 2018. Closure Tree will be held on 14 September 2018 in Helsinki, Finland. Go to closuretree.org/2018. That's c l o j u t r e .org/2018 for all the details. The Closure Exchange conference call for papers is open a bit longer until June 22nd 2018. The Closure Exchange Conference will be held on the 3rd and 4th of December in London. Go on over to skillsmatter.com conferences 10459-closure-exchange-2018 for all the details or maybe just Google it. If you have a Closure-related event you'd like us to mention, drop us a line at podcast.cognitech.com. Well, that's about it. So on the Karen and Michael Nygaard and episode 141 of the Cognacast.
1: That is pretty funny. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna do my welcome thing. Uh I have to know today's date. So welcome everyone. Today is Friday the thirteenth, and this is the Cognicast. I'm Karen Meyer, and it's my great pleasure to have um Mike Nygaard on the show with us. So it's always fun talking with them. Thank you for being with us, Mike.
2: Hi Karen, it's great to be back.
1: So we are going to mix it up a little bit today. I know it's tradition and all uh, to have the guests come on and have an experience of art, but today's a little different. It's, uh, it's Friday the 13th, so I, so I feel like we can mix it up a little bit. Are you okay with that?
2: Sure. Hit me.
1: Okay. First, you're familiar with Lord of the Rings, right? Yes. And Hobbit. Yes. Okay, so I'm going to ask you, this is a really kind of tough, controversial question. Do you think they could have just simply ridden the Eagles to drop the ring? (laughs) (laughs) What's your take on this whole
2: thing? I think it's logistically plausible. Um, Probably would have required some bargaining. But it makes for a really uninteresting narrative. So the demands of story say that uh, it doesn't work out that way. So I guess I I don't have a great in-universe explanation. But the out-of-universe explanation is uh, that Tolkien had a story to tell. And he needed the journey to tell the story.
1: Yeah. mean I've also heard, too, I mean, the Aya can see things. So they would, like, totally see the eagles riding in. So it would be like a no-go, right?
2: Yeah, but eagles can dodge and hobbits on the side of a mountain, aren't that great at dodging. So, I mean, if, if you're worried about the eye of Sauron, why would you want to be a slow target on the ground instead of something (laughs) zipping through the air?
1: And I've also heard, you know, the Eagles are their own proud race and not a taxi service. So, you know,
2: (laughs) yeah, that's true, but they probably have something they want.
1: (laughs) Oh, goodness. <laughs> okay, so a bonus question, since we're not doing the experience of, of art. Um, so who do you think would win a fight? <laughs> I think you know where I'm going here. Between the Hulk and Superman.
2: <laughs> um, I don't know that either of them would ever win. But everyone around would lose (laughs) because, you know, the madder the Hulk gets, the stronger he gets. Uh, And Superman is pretty much invincible. So they're just going to keep pounding each other through buildings and, you know, schools and whatnot. (laughs) So probably lay waste to the whole planet before uh, they just get tired and give up.
1: Yeah. So this is kind of interesting because he's like infinitely strong then, right? I mean, it depends on he has no upper bound. It depends on how angry the Hulk gets.
2: I I recall that from, you know, when I was reading those comics. I I understand some writers of the series have done different things and said that that's not really the case, but uh but I definitely recall it that way. Like he gets bigger and he gets stronger.
1: But he doesn't get smarter. See, that's a thing.
2: Yeah. That's true.
1: So I think I think that Superman could maybe trick him into not being as angry.
2: Hmm. Maybe. Or just fling him into deep space where he can't <laughs> come back because he doesn't know how to fly.
1: Okay. Well, well, well <laughs> thank you for exploring these deep questions with me instead of having the experience of art. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, So I I don't know about the weather over where you are, but it is one of these first really nice spring days here in um, Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, We've had such, it's been so cold for so long. So finally having a really warm day is just incredible. So what is it like where, where you are?
2: Well, I'm in Florida and have been for a few years now and uh we've had windows and doors open for uh for about a month already and the jasmine is blooming outside so it's it's very nice
1: ooh that does sound nice <laughs> the
2: the only downside is that we're rapidly approaching termite season my whole part of the world uh got infested with formosan termites about 20 years ago and they all swarm right around mother's day uh so uh, for a week around mother's day from 9 p.m. to about 9.45, there are clouds of termites swarming outside, and we basically have to live under blackout conditions because if we have any light leaking from the house, they'll crawl in around windows and doors. Uh, and, of course, that's just disgusting. So so we put up the drapes. We turn off the lights for half an hour or so, you know, live by candlelight in an interior room.
1: That sounds Uh-oh. terrifying. <laughs>
2: For the first couple of years it was it it really was, yeah.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I'll have to have, you know, keep that in mind if I if I uh, move to Florida. I had no idea.
2: It's it's really the panhandle that's gotten those. And I don't know if they're spreading or not, but yeah, it's it's pretty weird.
1: <laughs> so one one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on the show again to um talk about is your book. Um and I wanted you. I it, I think the first time I was looking when it came out, the first edition of Release It was like in 2007. Is that correct?
2: That's right. It was.
1: Yeah. So it, it it's it's been a while. Um. So I kind of wanted to talk about look at the history of the first book, and then you know how how it is and why it is that you, you wanted to have a second edition.
2: Okay. Well, the, the genesis of the first book was actually uh, a talk that I gave to my local users group up in, uh, up in Minnesota. It was called OTUG, the Object Technology Users Group. It um, had, had grown way past objects in, in the years of its existence, but um, it was kind of like uh, my, my crowd of developers there. And I gave this talk about living with systems in production – and how a lot of the software that we were writing and had written using common design techniques, uh, how it caused a lot of crashes and downtime and lost money and lost sleep. And I got into the subject and ended up going for about three hours. Um, <laughs> and uh, my audience stuck with me. At afterwards, uh, Mary and Tom Papadick the uh, authors of lean software development and people I admire a lot um, sort of grabbed me by the lapels up against the wall and said, you have to write a book about this. This is important stuff and nobody's talking about it. Um, so, you know, when, when you get that kind of a message uh, from, from someone you respect, you kind of want to think about it pretty hard. I started writing a couple of chapters and as it happened, Andy Hunt from the pragmatic programmers came through town, uh, maybe a month later or two months later. So I pitched him on the idea and he got very enthusiastic too. Um, and so, uh, maybe six weeks after that, I had a contract to write this book.
1: That's awesome. It took me,
2: it took me almost two years to get done writing it. Um, it was not a fast thing to write because, um, you know, it, when, when you're explaining something in written form, you have to really think hard about, is this really true? How much do I believe this? Um, uh, am I just saying this because it sounds good or, or is this actually going to work? And so, you know, actually putting the words down on paper was not what took so long. What took so long was, um, you know, trying to make sure I could back everything up.
1: Yeah, so how how actually did you go about that? Did you talk to
2: other people, you know, or? Yeah, I had the good fortune at the time to be working for a company that did uh, outsourced operations for other companies' websites. And so we had uh, quite a few clients in different domains, and I was in a position where I was sort of like the troubleshooter of last resort. So I was able to see a lot of different failures in a lot of systems, and I had access to the engineers who'd been working on all these things. And I could, you know, talk about what I was seeing and and ask, you know, would this have helped? It turns out that uh, there actually are a lot of outages and failures that are still caused by hardware problems. Uh, Discs go bad. Um, And people tend to buy discs at in bulk at the same time and so there's more correlated failures than the math would lead you to believe. So that that's a whole class of things that I I didn't address in the book because it really wasn't about the software. Um but then the remaining portion that was all software related I could uh vet and bounce against people.
1: So uh, did you um have any I guess Sometimes when you're writing stuff down and writing a book, it really gels ideas that you kind of partially had. So did did you have any like revelations that really kind of formed out of this book?
2: I think one of the biggest ones is that um I I really want to start designing start. At the time, I wanted to start designing things around error handling and around failure handling and make that a first-class concern rather than an afterthought. And so now pretty much every time I go in and, and we're talking about a system, one of the first things that I'm asking is how do we know if it's working? How do we know if something's not working? And if you keep asking that question, like before you even design a feature, you... Uh, figure out how you're going to observe it, um, not only do you get a more transparent system, but you actually get a better encapsulated, um, uh, more robust and resilient system all the way through. It just, it leads you to think about things differently.
0: Yeah,
1: I mean, there, there's a lot of things in your book, I think, that had an immense impact on how people think about systems and design systems. One I'd like to call out in particular, maybe um, you could talk about it, is, is circuit breakers. Did that actually originate in your book?
2: It did. Uh, I was the one who named it and wrote it down. Um, I wasn't the one who invented it. I had seen, you know, sort of uh, pieces of this pattern in several places but, uh, yeah, I, I pulled it together and called it a thing. And uh, the name has resonated and stuck uh, to the extent that I've now been in several conference talks where people will, you know, ask, who here has heard of circuit breakers? And, you know, I'm I'm sitting in the room, which is always <laughs> kind of fun. Um, and, uh, you know, everyone raises their hand. <laughs> and it turns out the speaker doesn't even know where it came from. It's just part of the... Industry practice now, uh, so that's that's really a great feeling.
1: Yeah, th- that that means you're actually a bona fide thought leader now.
2: We've coined I guess so. you've
1: coined a term.
2: <laughs> I guess so.
1: You're official. One of, the,
2: one of the things that was uh, uh, really surprising, you know, I I didn't want to write a disposable book. Like there's this whole industry of you know teach yourself. Version X of something in Y number of days, uh, and those are so specific to a particular product and a particular version that I sort of just regard them as like pills. You take it to gain the knowledge, and then it, then you're done with the book. So it's just a way of ingesting the information. I I didn't want to write that, but I was still surprised that the sales of release it the first edition were almost flat over the years. I mean it was it was selling well but they they didn't decay the way that you would expect. And I started writing it in the era of uh the big Java application servers. But it turns out there was a lot in there that applied to those application servers that's even more important once you have a lot of tiny moving pieces. So as more people moved towards microservices, like a lot of those techniques became uh, more necessary rather than less
1: yeah so so talking about that with with the new edition um mm-hmm. what 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 sort of things are different is it Is it talking more about microservices now and and that sort of thing, or
2: part of what actually got me over the hump to write the second edition was when I started listing out everything that had changed, like all of cloud computing. I mentioned in the first edition that virtualization could be a way of solving things in the future. And like, not only was virtualization mainstream, it was already passe. <laughs> um, uh, so, I, you know, I listed all these things out. I'm like, yeah, okay, it's time. The new book does have a whole section that sort of assumes you're in a distributed virtualized environment and looks at how you build a system. Uh, with cohesion out of so many different moving parts. So it, it does this sort of slow zoom back from, you know, the foundational layers of of hardware and wires in a location, but pulls back and looks at what does it mean to run individual processes on machines? And now pulling back from that, how are we linking them together and communicating across them And then what does the control plane look like? The idea of a control plane didn't even exist in the first edition. It wasn't in the industry at that time. Uh, But now it's a pretty well-established idea that in addition to the software that delivers your features, you have this whole other tier of software that manages and controls your infrastructure and the components that you uh, actually are delivering features with. So that's in there as well. And that whole section of the book. It's a new part. It was a lot of fun to write and uh, a little bit of a challenge because there's so much conditional logic. I actually played with the idea of doing it like a choose-your-own-adventure book where, you know, if you're running in your own data center, turn to page 78. Uh, (laughs) Because things have gotten a lot more complex. There are more options, more choices. And some of them work together and some of them don't. Uh, You know, if you're in a Kubernetes world, then uh, console probably is not useful to you. We can't just, we don't have standard sockets for the pieces of software in the control plane. Uh, and they don't all uh, overlap or cover the same things. So it became uh, quite a challenge to present this in any kind of a sensible way.
1: Wow. <laughs> so how long did it take you to write the, the whole second edition?
2: I think it was about another year and a half. Wow. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm not a terribly speedy writer, I'm afraid. Uh, I know some people who can sit down and write a whole book in six weeks, and I really admire that. I wish I could do that.
1: Yeah, that, that's crazy right there. That, that, <laughs> that, that's, that's, I think, well, very unusual.
2: Well, you, you're a writer as well. How long did it take you to write Code Shifter?
1: Uh, a long, long time, like over a year. Oh,
2: really? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't feel so bad then. <laughs> no.
1: But, uh, yeah. I mean, I guess it's just, when you think about just a new edition of the book, it's it's not just a simple process of, you know, updating something here and there. It, I mean, you had to do some serious work and thinking and, you know, make it a cohesive whole. So, that's a big job. That's
2: true. Uh By the end of it, almost every page was touched uh in one way or another i fifty percent of it is completely new, and then the rest has been uh modified and updated
1: cool. so i'm i 'm looking at the table of contents um here and it 's just got great great stuff in it and the, one of the parts I'm looking at right now um, is where you talk about um, stabilizing your system and stability patterns and anti-patterns. Mm-hmm. And in the stability patterns, um, which are the good things, uh, you have things like you know the circuit breakers and fail fast. But in the anti-patterns, you have um, something that has kind of a strange name to me that I was going to ask you to kind of explain. Something called a dog pile. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so a dog pile is uh it's a term from American football. Uh when some poor unfortunate soul uh has the ball and maybe fumbles it and then uh you know everybody tries to leap on the ball and basically the rest of the team leaps on those people and you get this giant pile of people uh where the folks at the bottom are getting crushed. <laughs> uh and so the the visual image is Uh, you do something to provoke uh, a large number of processes in your system to go make a request to some shared resource all at once.
0: Uh, The classic
2: example is like you send a message that tells all your application servers to flush their cache, and so now they all have to refresh their cache and warm up again, and they're all going to do it by calling the database at the same time.
1: Oh, goodness. (laughs) And,
2: you know, so you've got a horizontally scaled layer trying to funnel all their requests to some vertically scaled shared resource. That's the dog
0: pile.
1: Oh, okay. Well, that makes sense. Now I was looking at that going, I don't know what's a dog pile. <laughs> so that definitely makes sense. So you also talk about um, chaos engineering too. So is that, is that something that you've been thinking about lately? Cause I hear it in, in lots of different places.
2: Yeah, so to be clear for our listeners, chaos engineering is not one of the stability anti-patterns, believe it or not. Chaos engineering is a way to uh, improve your stability by deliberately creating problems uh, and doing it in a production or very near production environment. Uh, It's kind of a counterintuitive idea. So I like to make an analogy to uh, continuous integration, right? Right. At at one time, we would all go off and write our software in separate places, and we'd come back after months and try and piece everything together. And it was incredibly painful. Um, In fact, uh, people used to say that, you know, writing the code is the first 90% of the project and integrating it is the Mm. second 90% of the project. Um, You know, of all the solutions that were tried, most uh, just accepted that it was going to be hard and looked at you know better specifications, better testing, or what have you, uh, it took a group of radicals to say, actually, uh, the right answer for this painful task is to do it all the time. <laughs> well, I think it's the same thing with chaos engineering. So if you say uh, the real world is kind of random and strange things happen and partial failures occur... You know, one approach to creating availability is to try and prevent the bad things from ever happening. Uh, and I would, I would label that as the traditional approach. The chaos engineering approach says, actually, the way to make sure that, uh, that we continue delivering is to cause problems all the time. So we're going to simulate failures and we're going to simulate uh, network latency and lost packets and, and what have you and make sure that our system is always resilient to that.
1: So I think Netflix is big into this, isn't it? The as a theory. Yeah,
2: yeah, absolutely. Um, and I would say uh, the the chaos team at Netflix, uh, led by Casey Rosenthal, uh, recently joined by Nora Jones, um, they were the ones who sort of led the way on this uh, with the Chaos Monkey. And the Chaos Monkey was um, it was a novel idea in part of Netflix's move to the cloud, they wanted to make sure that every cluster auto-scaled correctly. um, And they decided the best way to test that was to kill instances running in production once in a while. So the chaos monkey wakes up, picks a hapless victim, and blows away an EC2 instance. (laughs) What's interesting is it's not just that you discover um, problems in the code that way, but when the developers know that that's going to happen, they think about it differently. Mm. And of course, it's going to happen anyway. Like if you're running EC2 instances, some of them are going to go down regardless of what you do, you know, even without the Chaos Monkey. So you should kind of always be thinking about it, but somehow the Chaos Monkey made it real in a way that (laughs) that, uh, the infrastructure didn't. So they've evolved beyond that now and they've they've got a number of different techniques for uh, kind of the same thing. And I was at uh, a group called the Chaos Community Day, where um, Casey was talking about how when they introduced Chaos Monkey, they got a big uptick in availability, and then they introduced a Latency Monkey that would inject latency into arbitrary network connections, and it turned out that they had a bunch of you know sensitive ordering and race conditions and and latent bugs of that sort, uh, and so after they introduced Latency Monkey, they got another increase in availability. Uh, so they, they've, you know, continued to try to apply that in uh, in broader and broader ways.
1: Yeah, that's, I, I think, definitely the height of of trying to really design for resiliency. And, and I think it even goes beyond software. Um, I know um, from our hallway, hallway chats that we have both read, um, I'm trying to think of his last how to pronounce his last name? But it's Taleb. Uh, he wrote the Black yes. Swan. Is, it, yes. is that how you pronounce his last name? It's like Nassim Taleb. Yes. So his first book, uh, I think, was the Black Swan, and then I'm not sure whether it was second book, but then there was one called Anti-Fragile.
2: Mm-hmm. Is so? I think that might have been his his third actually. Um, <laughs> but he's writing a whole series called the the Incerto about uncertainty and uh and randomness and and how to live in a world with randomness but yeah anti-fragile uh that's a concept that i've really taken to heart
1: yeah so is that basically chaos engineering but for non-software things like banks
2: (laughs) (laughs) um i would i i I would put chaos engineering in that category of techniques to create anti-fragile systems um it it 's not the only way uh, a lot of what he talks about is like centralization and scaling up creates bigger disasters when they occur, and so decentralized systems with smaller scale are more survivable for you know a, a society a civilization um, there 's a funny thing from uh, systems theory and and general systems theory where uh doubling the size of the system uh will cause the catastrophe to be four times the magnitude and, and catastrophe wow. there specifically means like a discontinuous jump um so as you scale things up the uh the size of the dislocation uh scales up uh as a you know power law on top of the system scale
1: yeah i see this is what i just don't understand about I guess our technology and society that we have, like we have these decentralized technologies come through, but then we end up just centralizing stuff on top of it. Like we're all, all on Gmail. We're all on Facebook. We're all on, you know,
2: yeah. And, and this is one of those uh, paradoxes that Taleb talks about where, um, over the short term, it's really efficient to do that, and so it's economically advantageous to build things that are centralized. Um, and it's it's not just our IT and network stuff; it's also uh, banking and food supplies and so on. Um, so, over the short term, it's really advantageous. But then, over a longer term, uh, when the you know sort of true distribution of shocks reveals itself. Uh, you know, you may be doing great for a while, and then some some shock comes along and disrupts the system, and you lose all the gains you've ever made. Mm. He had a soundbite right after the 2008 financial crisis that uh, that really hit me, you know, like, between the eyes. Uh, he said that over the history of banking, it had not made a profit because of 2008. What? And, and he meant all <laughs> the way back to the Medici's <laughs> in the, the Renaissance era.
1: I... I... Yeah. That that's hard for me to conceive. I'll have to I'll have to think about that tonight. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it does it does make me a little concerned just, you know, how our society is set up that, you know, maybe we need a a chaos monkey every now and then to make us be aware of of um not being too fragile.
2: Yeah. It's something I worry about too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> But definitely, if we're designing software, we can inject that into it and think about it. So that that does. I mean, the chaos monkey again. I think is is your known knowns. So you can break the things that you know, but I guess you're still going to have that case of the things that break that you don't know about that you can't simulate.
2: Well, I think you can simulate uh, a lot, and injecting failures will help you discover problems in other areas. Um, but the the kind of uh, unsolved portion of chaos engineering is that, um, it, in a sense, it's a search problem. So anytime you're injecting a fault, you're searching for some place where you've got fragility and you can inject a fault and cause a failure. But as, you know, like any search problem, it's subject to this curse of dimensionality. So you have more kinds of faults you can inject. You have more places. We have more machines, more connections, more processes, and so on. Uh, and so the, the search problem gets harder and harder. And either you have to ramp up your chaos activity until it's, you know, <laughs> the dominant activity in your system, uh, or you have to get smarter about the search. Uh, and that's that's where things are kind of progressing or, or where the community is Uh, investigating new ways of doing things is around getting, getting smarter with that discovery process. Hmm. There's a guy named uh, Peter Alvaro who talks about um, uh, tracing successful requests to understand why they were successful, form a hypothesis about how you can break them uh, and then test that hypothesis and doing it all in an automated way with what he calls a cunning malevolent intelligence. Wow. Uh, I hope we never hook that up to robots.
1: I <laughs> said so that's kind of like the opposite. Like when when I'm debugging, I'm forming a hypothesis about why the thing's broken. But this is the opposite. You know that you're you're, yeah, you're exactly. trying you're trying to un, undebug it.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so imagine you're you're in a system like Netflix, and you can trace requests from the very edge all the way through the whole call tree. Using uh, Zipkin or Dapper or something like that, Uh, then you can look at that successful call tree and say, uh, or look at a whole bunch of them and say, hmm, every single one of these calls involves this link from service F to service G. Um, What if we sever that link and G no longer works? Well, if you do that, you can inject a, a fault and they have a way of putting a header on a request that basically says, you know, when you get to the outbound call from F to G, just fail. Don't, don't actually make the call. Um, one of two things will happen. Either the request will fail, in which case you've actually discovered uh, a, a point of failure and now you know you can go fix it, or the request will succeed and what you've discovered is some redundancy that was in the system. And you'll have some new traces that show that, uh, you know, whatever the redundant path was got activated. And you can see that in the call tree. And so you're continuously learning by injecting these small uh, uh, simulated failures all over the place and looking at the calls. Uh, Now, of course, you know, on a system like Netflix's scale, uh, there's, there's no way any human can ever keep track of that. So they're looking into tools that will... Uh, trace that and and sort of keep running the experiments
1: oh my gosh this is i i've in kind of into machine learning lately right so this is kind of reminding me of these like adversarial networks that they yeah. they kind of link together like one is trying to you know go against the other one and you end up with some sort of nash equilibrium <laughs> At the mm-hmm. end. So I guess maybe that's what we're going for, you know, the, the Nash yeah, equilibrium maybe. of stability. Maybe. <laughs> Very interesting. Well, one of the things I, I wanted to talk to you too about is um because I think you've spent a lot of time thinking about this, is microservices and kind of how programming is changing um, now, especially uh, since People are moving a lot to like AWS and doing microservices. It seems seems like our programming is not exactly what it used to be <laughs> with functions, and uh, you know it's happening somewhere else. And like, what what sort of the are the challenges with that?
2: Well, um, yeah, it's it's definitely true that things are moving in that direction. And actually, some some folks are. Uh, already talking about beyond microservices or after microservices. I view microservices as a technological solution to an organizational problem. Uh, so I don't really view there being any value in in the microservices per se. You know, if you could do your computation all on one machine with no possibility of, of failure over remote calls, why wouldn't you do it all in one machine? And the reason, of course, is uh, that development gets slower as you add more people to a team. And so our runtimes and our languages don't really allow us to combine code from different teams in a safe way uh, with isolation. So think about uh, running things together as DLLs in a C-sharp environment, right? Code from one team could uh, use up all the threads. And so nothing's available for the other one. Or uh, code from another team may uh, over-consume network resources or um, leak database connections or something along these lines. And so you can't get good isolation from code from different teams. And that means if you're combining things into one runtime or one process, you have a big integration testing effort and a release management process that slows everything down. So we want to be able to release things Uh, faster and have individual teams release things faster so we don't incur those delays. That's what leads you to microservices. Um, uh, I think the the unit of deployment we've settled on as being a whole VM is kind of mind-bogglingly broken. (laughs) Uh, In other words, it was the job of an operating system to isolate processes from each other so what went wrong well when you try to deploy your software it comes along with all of these requirements around versioning uh, of the software itself of the runtime of libraries it depends on even of you know command line tools that it shells out to Uh, so it turns out that the os and the os kernel isn't sufficiently isolating processes um so we say well then uh, an os isn't really isolating the processes enough we're going to run vms on the os where each one has its own little os so it can have its own version of everything its own namespace and and so on so effectively we you know instead of fixing the os and saying you know posix is not sufficient uh, we need to come up with something better than posix we're basically just you know hacking it <laughs> And I think that's also true with containers. I mean, containers are nothing more than using a bunch of the OS features to get isolation of process IDs and uh, uh, network interface addresses and, and listeners and so on. Um, so, in effect, you know, containers are really just super processes. Right? It's doing with the container what a, a process was supposed to do in the operating system. So all of this is kind of uh, my long-winded way of saying microservices are uh, a compromise and a hack because our operating systems and languages and programming runtimes are inadequate uh, to today's uh, uh, development styles.
1: (laughs) That's like the whole internet, right? It's all kind of just a hack.
2: (laughs) A hack on a hack on a hack, (laughs) I guess, yeah.
1: So what what about... um, I guess, trade-offs because there, there is, I mean, it does, it seems like it makes more things more complex, right?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So what you're, what you're trying to get is uh, development speed. You know, you're trying to get velocity from your individual teams Um, and what you're trading off is operational complexity. So when I talked about the control plane and, you know, the need to run um, uh, suites like Kubernetes to place and schedule and run your, your containers, um, all of that is, you know, a solution to a problem that was created by running the microservices. Um, there's a another set of problems. Uh, I mean, as, aside from the fact that it's a distributed system where your call provider may disappear and the call uh, the caller can stay around, there's another set of problems around just getting things to work together. If if you have a bunch of different teams working independently, they need to coordinate about interfaces. And sometimes that goes well, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes you have good community standards inside your company, and sometimes you don't. So a lot of enterprises that I see are kind of atomizing their teams and trying to uh, break their applications down into microservices, but they don't have the ability for the teams to negotiate interfaces. And then even once they do that, Now you have another problem, which is, suppose I have 2,000 services. Actually, I I heard a talk from a guy at Uber who was, at the time, they had 2,500 developers and 2,000 services. Wow. (laughs) Now you say, as a company, we need to make a strategic change. How do you then get all of those 2,000 services or, or some fraction of those 2,000 services to change in a way that allows you to attack a new market? Or do you just write another 1,000 services because you know they're kind of quick to write and theoretically disposable? Like the, the complexity uh, exceeds what any human can hold in their head and make rational decisions about. And so somehow you have to have this, like, I think of it as as applying a magnetic field or an electric field. Instead of point-to-point communication about the new strategy, you kind of have to have, you know, field-based communication where you tell everyone in the company, this is what we're doing. And I don't know what each of you needs to do to help us do it, but, you know, you go figure it out and we're all changing direction in this way. It's, It's really an unsolved problem in organizational dynamics.
1: Yeah, so it's not a silver bullet. You can't just say, "Hey, we're going to do microservices and everything's going to be swell."
2: No, definitely not. Oh, and and I'll say, uh, just going to microservices is not an architecture. Um, <laughs> it's a deployment style and it's a development style. But you know, I can have one one enterprise where the services are arranged in ranks, and you have you know an understanding that. This kind of a service talks directly to users, and this kind of a service at the other end talks directly to data stores and integrations. And in between, we have, you know, layers like you would have in a neural network. That's one style of microservice architecture. But you can also say we have uh, microservices that are HTTP rest on the perimeter of our environment, and everything in the interior goes over a persistent log. And we do a command-style communication on the interior. Both of those are microservice architectures, but they're radically different. And uh, neither of them will sort of emerge on their own. What emerges on its own without coordination is everybody calls everybody else. The big (laughs) ball of mud.
1: Yeah. I I guess trying to, uh, as a software developer, trying to hold in your head what what you need to do to get your job done if it's not an isolated change. It's really increased in complexity quite a bit with this.
2: Yeah, it has. And as usual, the solution to one problem uh, begets the problems that need the next solution. And so something we're going to hear a lot about over the next couple of years is the idea of a service mesh. Uh, And what this is saying is really we're going to take the operational complexity out of the individual microservices, and we're effectively going to give every instance of every service a proxy that knows how to do network discovery and knows how to do uh, routing, and that actually does the circuit breakers for you. Uh, So some people call it a sidecar, um, but the idea is it's sort of there as uh an exoskeleton or a wrapper around your microservice to handle interfacing with your operational environment. So then when you're writing your service code, you're writing, you know, more or less linear code with little need for configuration.
1: Okay. So there so there is hope.
2: <laughs> There's hope. Yeah. Uh, I mean, again, I can look at this and say, "Well, this is this is another hack around a failure of our operating systems." <laughs> um, uh, but you know, until somebody invents the new new OS for the actual cloud, I guess we're stuck with all these hacks.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then there's, I guess, Conway's law. Right. So, somehow we have to we model stuff after our own communication styles. So I guess we're going to kind of evolve together because technology changes how we communicate, and but then we still communicate as humans uh, to figure out what we want to do. So that's going to feed off of each other.
2: Yeah, I, I have to say, uh, when, uh, when I wrote Release It, the first edition, um, I included something about Conway's Law in there. And it really wasn't a very well-known uh, term at the time. And people kind of thought of it sarcastically, like, yeah, if you have four teams, you're going to get a four-pass compiler. <laughs> um, but if you go back and read uh, his original paper, it's not meant as a cynical observation. Um, it's actually the result of a dynamic process, um, which, uh, and uh, it's all about the communication structure of your organization. So, uh you know when when two developers have to communicate about an interface they will tend to create a, a spec uh, and so if you have two teams that have to communicate about an interface they'll they'll create a stronger spec and and then what you see in the software is you can see where the organizational boundaries are because that's where the well-defined interfaces are um, we would also say today that those are the boundaries that people don't refactor across because you don't have collective ownership on the other side of the interface. Um, So as our communication structures change, we should expect the structure of our software to change. So, you know, I've I've been a little bit snarky about microservices, but in a way I could say the microservice architecture represents the same flattening out of the communication structure as our management structures went through uh, all throughout the 2000s.
1: That's an interesting perspective. have to think about that. <laughs> it's really cool. So here's a, here's another uh, communication pattern that's uh, in in a in a technology now that's that's quite hip, I guess. Smart contracts.
2: You talking about uh, Ethereum style?
1: Yeah, I, I guess I don't really know that much about smart contracts myself, but somehow it's supposed to you know encode. Um, you know, this communication uh, of um, you know buying and selling and whatever the the human contract would be, so I guess is this another thing that's going to be working our way into our architectures, you think
2: I really don't know. Um, I remain on the fence about blockchain technologies and about ethereum uh, i I did get a chance to talk with somebody who is uh, now working for a company that's explicitly doing smart contract work. Uh, and moreover, they're trying to uh, create type systems to give you better safety in those contracts because um, a bug in your smart contract is like a loophole that people can drive money through. <laughs> um, and we've already seen that, right? We've, we've seen some uh, exploits against bugs in those smart contracts. Yeah, But I, I really don't know. I mean, the, the key ideas there are, uh, everything is visible. Uh, it's distributed across multiple organizations and it doesn't require trust. And so it's, it doesn't seem like something that would be interesting in the interior of an enterprise where you assume that, uh, there's at least a higher level of trust or, or control over who you trust. Um, So maybe it'll be something that we see between companies, but not inside companies. Mm. I don't know. Um, I'm I'm cautious because it's such a a hyped technology right now.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, And the whole area is so rife with scams.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So I'm, I'm
2: definitely kind of taking a wait and see approach myself. Yeah,
1: that's definitely sensible, I think. So just a recap on your um, book for the listeners again, so Release is out in the second edition. It's at Prague, right? That's where the best place to get it?
2: Yep. It's also available on Amazon, or if you're a Safari subscriber, it's on Safari.
1: Okay. So I definitely uh, suggest everybody check that out. Um, well, we've been having a fun time talking about all sorts of things <laughs> um, for, for quite a bit, um, but I did want to kind of mention Uh, something I saw on the news the other day with a project that we had both worked on. And this was a really fun project for me because it had to do with game development.
2: Oh, yes.
1: (laughs) So it was um, the default editor, like this new editor for making games um, was, is out. And um, maybe you could uh, uh, remind me the details. It was like a video of a conference
2: yeah, so um, the default they call it Editor Two. Uh, default is a game engine. It's available for free. Um, it uh, sort of uh, specializes in mobile games, but you can build build your game and then compile it to run on native devices or Mac, Windows, Linux, or web. They actually compile all the way to MScript, I think. And the key idea with their Uh, game engine is that you can update things live so these guys were doing a talk at um, I think a Russian game conference uh, and they were showing off the engine but they were showing it off using the editor that we wrote so you know he'd have his phone uh, held up for the audience to see and they would push code to the phone while the game was still running it wouldn't even take them back to the beginning of the level you just keep going so it had that very live fluid dynamic experience and uh, and the editor we we built it in closure and it's it's still in beta technically but I was really thrilled to see how far they've gone with it like the tools that are in it uh, the look the feel uh, it's you know it's a real thing it's very sophisticated now
1: yeah it, it looks fantastic and again it was it was a Pretty personally exciting project when I got a, the honor of uh, working on it because I hadn't ever worked on kind of game stuff before, and that's really fun.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was.
1: And also, you know, that it gave me some cool points with my kids, right?
2: <laughs> Excellent.
1: So I gotta, I gotta keep that as much as I can. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yep, definitely.
1: Yeah. So uh, is, is there anything else that you kind of wanted to talk about that we haven't hit?
2: No, I can't think of anything. I, I mean, I had something before we started talking, but uh, we got into so many different interesting subjects that uh, that I forgot what else it was.
1: Okay. Well, wait, when you remember, let me know, and then we'll have you on again.
2: Okay. That sounds good.
1: <laughs> okay. So for the the closing part, we are going to stick today even though it's the 13th and we totally went off and didn't do the art thing in the beginning we we are going to do the the closing because it is one of my favorite parts it's asking for a piece of advice and i love to hear all the advice so do you have some advice for um us and the listeners
2: oh wow i should have thought about this in advance i should have planned something (laughs)
1: So your advice is to think about your advice in advance.
2: Ooh, that's very meta. <laughs> no, I, I probably wouldn't say that. <laughs> I, I do have something, actually, and, and uh, I like to try and keep things lighthearted mostly, but uh, this one is, is pretty serious. For developers and programmers, it, it is pretty important to learn how money works in companies. And I know that we, we often want to treat our work as art, or somehow a pure craft that's not involved with, uh, you know the, the crassness of the money. But um, I also constantly hear people asking questions like, "How do I convince my managers to let me do X?" Or, uh, you know, they keep making these bad decisions for features and they ignore the architecture. And um, my response is usually that you're just not speaking a language they understand. If it's two engineers talking and say, Karen, you and I are are sitting there talking and I say, well, we could do that to meet our July delivery, but we're going to incur some tech debt uh, around uh, SSO. You would hear that and you would understand the implication that, you know, if we're going to go back and do anything else with SSO, we probably have to clean up a bit of a mess and it's going to cost some time and money down the road, but it's a trade-off we're making in order to meet our, our date now. Right. But if you just leave the statement there when talking to people outside of engineering, they hear that and they they just, they don't know enough to be able to connect the dots and follow through to the implications. Mm. And so we leave it hanging there, you know, as, as techies, we leave it hanging there because we don't want to be condescending or insulting to the people we're talking to. Uh, But we're making assumptions that, you know, that aren't true. So what we often have to do is translate things into um, money and time. And so we could instead reframe that discussion and say, well, we can do that to make our July delivery, but we're going to take two weeks after that before we can do anything else with SSO. So that that time, you know, now, yes, you feel under the gun and it's an estimate. And I know there's a whole controversy around estimates or no estimates, but you're translating into a language that they can speak. Well, in order for you to know how to translate into the language they speak, you have to know something about that language and so as as boring and tawdry as it may seem understanding how your company budgets capital understanding the difference between capital and expense that's pretty important uh knowing how to read a balance sheet is pretty important being able to talk about the time value of money and you know the difference between getting benefits now and getting benefits down the road um this is just a a variety of financial literacy that developers need to have in order to be uh, successful persuaders in their companies,
1: I think that is fantastic advice, and I also think that you could write another book on this.
2: <laughs> uh, like corp- corporate finance for developers?
1: Yeah, yeah. I would, I would definitely uh, be a be a reader of that.
0: So just food uh, for
1: food for thought, and and okay. and Prague Prague. Uh, if you want to contact Mike about it, that'd be great too. <laughs> <laughs> So thank you so much, uh, Mike. I think we're going to wrap it here. Um, so thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the Cognacast.
0: You have been listening to the Cognacast. The Cognacast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We're here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at cognitech.com and on Twitter at, at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash you can contact the show by tweeting at Cognicast or by emailing us at podcast@cognitech.com. At Our guest this week was Michael Nygard, whom you can find on Twitter at @mtnygard. That's at @mtnygard. Our host this week was Karen Meyer on Twitter as @gigasquid. Episode cover art is by Russ Olson. Audio production is by Joe Smith and Jared Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russ Olson. Thanks for listening.